Daniel chapter 3, we're going to look at uh, this uh, chapter on the, f the fiery furnace, talking about hot, amen, and um, looking at these Hebrew young men here that, um, that were put into a great trial of life, and I've got a lot of foundational principles that I'm going to be talking about tonight, and I won't be getting really much to the fiery furnace tonight, but I will be you know, laying the foundation of this chapter. As I've been going through this book, I've been wanting to help you understand the verses in it, help you understand the background, so I'm not just looking to give you an inspirational message necessarily, though it should be in there places. I, I'm really trying to teach you the passage itself, and so uh, that's just my way of doing this uh, particular series. Uh, other series I, I handle differently, but I thought for Wednesday night this would be a little more teachy than, than normal. But uh, Daniel chapter 3, we'll read, uh, we'll read down here a bit, and then I will... Uh, I'll get into my message. So it says in verse number one, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and a breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of, all, of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, and captains, and judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then an herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, Ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And that's as far as I'm going to read. Uh, that's as far as we're going to get tonight. And so I'm going to get into my message here. The first point I want to bring across is, is a king's ego. A king's ego. Uh, of course, we know Nebuchadnezzar is no humble man. Uh, this man, uh, of course, is filled with pride. We're going to see that within the first six chapters. And um, we're going to see the Lord humble him, but he's not there yet. Even with all the statements that he's making.
We have people watching online. Is it on or off? It's fine now? Okay, great. All right, and so Nebuchadnezzar, and I, I haven't figured out, you know, uh, I've got to verify the years, but some years have gone by here since chapter 2. And so these Hebrew boys, I know we call them boys, but they were more like men by the time they were actually placed into that furnace. And we also know that they were already rulers, and we'll look at that as well. And so he had victories. Uh, Jerusalem at this point had been destroyed. Uh, many more captives have been brought to Babylon from Israel. At this point, Egypt had been conquered. Uh, Tyre fell, finally fell after 13 years of, of being in siege to the Babylonian army. Uh, all of these things went to the head of Nebuchadnezzar, believing that he was the head of gold based upon his own merits. And this is the thing. He got that vision. Now he thought that he was something. That's not what God said. He said, this is the kingdom, and this is what it represents, but it's not because of your moral character. And he let that go to his head, all right? And so God's going to teach him some things as time goes on here. But letter B, Nebuchadnezzar constructed an image of gold. Uh, Verse number one, it says this, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three uh, three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So number one, the image was built 90 feet high by nine feet wide. Now think about this. Uh, Many people have said that it it must be an image of a man. But the thing is, in the passage, you you aren't told that. So we don't know whether it's an image of a man, but we do deduce that it probably was based upon the dream that he saw. And that dream, of course, was based on uh, what the Lord had showed him uh, through the dream. But... Notice that this image, it wasn't an image of gold, silver, brass, iron. He went all gold, you know. So if it was an image of a man, he was taking some liberties here. Amen. But when you look at the proportion of a man, 90 feet by 9, that would seem a little bit off. So if it is a man, I'm just going to give you this. It probably was something like this, where you had a tall base and maybe an image of a man on the top. Okay. Otherwise, if you try to make that whole pillar like a man, it'd be one skinny, tall man. Amen. And so just, just so you know, because, you know, for me, I'm always thinking that when he built this image, it was always just a man. But the scriptures don't tell us that. All right. Now, we, that's the speculation. And so we just need to mark it as such. So number two, the image was built on the plain of Dura so that all could see it. So he put it on a plain because he wanted to gather everybody around it, and there's that plane there, and he set it up there so the people could see it for miles and miles around, and they could come and gather around this thing so they could bow down and worship it. I'll give you another picture there. That's the plane of Dura. All right. Do you know what all those lines are around it? The lines? Well, it almost looks man-made. Well, those are probably walls and different things that from an ancient uh, archaeological find there. Is from what I understand. So, yeah, but that is the plane in that area right there. So you can see it. All right. Um, Number three, the image was gold, but most likely an image covered with gold. Now think about this. You make an image 90 feet high, 9 feet wide of solid gold. That is phenomenal. And you know what? I don't think it was. 
I don't think there was that much gold that they could do that, you know. So what I think it was is like as with many idols of that day, like even in Isaiah 40 verse 19, this is what it says. The workman melteth a graven image and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold and casteth silver chains. And so what they would do is they would build the image then afterwards they would cover it with gold because to get a solid statue of solid gold would just be an incredible, incredible thing that would take probably all the gold of his whole uh, kingdom to make it. And I don't think he did that, all right? But the Bible tells us in Matthew 24, verse number 15. No, that's not where I want it to go. I don't know why that's there. Let's move on quickly here. Letter C. The leaders of society were required to partake in the dedication of the golden image. And so this is interesting as I was reading through this and studying through this passage. Notice what it says. It says, The Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. I thought about this. Princes. So princes are, are those in charge of principalities. And so there's principalities, and in every one of those principalities there would be a prince that would be kind of the head of that principality. Then he says governors. So there were governors on top of that. So another government leader or somebody within the dynamic of the Babylonian kingdom. But notice what he says next. He says captains. Captains are what? What are they associated with? Armies. Military. And so he had the military leadership at this dedication. And then it says judges. So now we're looking at the legal system has been required to come bow down to this image. And then the next one is the treasurers. <laughs> now we're seeing that the whole financial system and the leaders of it have to come and, rede and, and to this dedication and bow down to this idol. And then you had counselors, and counselors are local governors within local or lo localities within that Babylonian provinces. And then another one is sheriffs. Now we're looking at the law enforcement involved with bowing down to this idol. It's very interesting. He called these people. He says, these are the people I want at the dedication of this idol or this image, and they will all bow down to this false god. And then, of course, rulers. The rulers were the provincial leaders. And by the way, the provincial leaders were who? Who were involved with those? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because in the last chapter, remember verse 49, after Daniel interpreted the dream, he had requested, the Bible says, then Daniel requested of the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. And so this chapter, we have no mention of Daniel. Why? I don't know. You can speculate. Maybe he was out somewhere in a different province. Maybe he was doing a travel. I don't know what he was doing. So I had some people that would say because his name was changed to Belshazzar uh, and Baal, that's the name of the false god that they named him after, Baal was a god of fire. And so they wouldn't have put him in a situation where, where he was representing the god of fire being burnt in a fiery furnace. And so that's just one speculation I heard. Whatever, it doesn't really matter. He just wasn't mentioned, all right? And so to institute a world religion, there would have to be a complete global submission 
from all areas of government to force the people to submit. And that's what he was doing here. And so you can see, if we're looking at the moral conduct of future empires uh, and what we're even going through today, see, it's really no different than it was back in Babylon. And we've seen it even within the COVID whole thing of this last couple of years, how a lot of those, um, a lot of the, the government officials, whatever, they would just band together. But necessarily, they wouldn't necessarily have all the, the facts, but they would just back each other up. <laughs> Amen. And so we can see that within the dynamic of the world, it, it's very easy to see how they could call these heads out and have them all bow down to a singular image in a, in a religion that they're instituting. So letter D, <coughs> Nebuchadnezzar's image was essentially promoting the one world church. The one world church. Uh, this was an assembly, and in fact, that's what it said, that they were gathering together. And you know, the word church comes from the word ecclesia, which means a called out assembly. So the word church is an assembly. So when you gather somebody, even actually within the uh, context of the New Testament, they would have political gatherings. And those political gatherings, they would use the Greek word ecclesia. But it wasn't uh, translated church because it wasn't related to the body of Christ. We also know that Israel, at one point in the New Testament, was called the church in the wilderness. But not because it was the church like us, because it wasn't identified with the Lord Jesus Christ and his body, it was identified with Israel as a body, as a nation. All right? So the word itself can be used based upon the context. And that's why we have to be Bible, Bible students. Amen? So it's always referring to an assembly. A, lo, a church has to assemble. If it's not assembling, then it's not a church. Okay? So, like, we can go do live stream, and I love it, and you folks listening, praise God, you know. But the fact of the matter is the church is a called-out assembly. And that's how we know we don't have a one-world church or a universal church. What the Lord left us here on this, on this planet was, was independent local churches. Amen? Amen? Why is it? Can somebody tell me what the, what the important aspect of having a local independent church is? Why is that so important? Some of you smart guys. <laughs> or girls. Pardon me? So the pastor can lead his people? Okay, well, that's a part of it. Go ahead. So they can actually assemble. Because no one's going to be able to travel 100 kilometers to the church. There's a good, good thing, too. So the assembly has to be local that way. That's right. Okay. And, and that, that really has to do with what, I'm, what we're really getting at here is the doctrine of the local New Testament church. See, the, the wider an assembly gets, the harder it is to maintain the unity of doctrine. That means if we would have a one world church, how could you get them all to agree on what the Bible says? Amen. It's impossible. It really is. That's why the Lord called churches to be independent and local. Because they, the, the boundaries need to be observed by the people of the church. If it was a one world church, there's no way I could observe any boundary. Nobody could. We wouldn't even know where they are. 
But because it's local, what we can do is make sure that our local church operates by the same doctrine, that the people that join the church believe the same thing. Because we were given a command in the scripture that we are to be of one mind and one mouth glorifying God. So we're supposed to say the same things. We're supposed to believe the same things. Now, there's people that'll come and they'll say, oh, yeah, nobody believes the same thing. Well, then call God a liar if you want to. I'm just going to say that he's right and I'm wrong. We can be of one mind, all right? And the only way you can do that is within a local assembly. You can't do that within a world church, not even a provincial church, not even a national church, not much less a global church, amen? But the thing is, with this global church that he's promoting here, he's not concerned about all the nitty-gritty stuff of doctrine. They're just concerned about worship. Just worship me. That's why it's going to be something within the tribulation time where they're going to have a one world church. It's going to have very little to do with doctrine. (laughs) Amen? Because there's no way you can. There's no way you can hold doctrine. So letter D, uh, he was promoting one world church. This is an assembly. Uh, It says that they were gathered together unto the dedication of the image. So they were all there gathering together. They understood the importance of everybody being there, even if Christians don't understand the importance of being in church. Amen. They understood that. We need to understand that as far as God's work is concerned. Now, the second point about that is the government authority usurped scriptural authority by requiring worship of a false god. So this is interesting. We live in a day and age, folks. uh, What has really set me off in the last couple of years is that when, when a person thought in their heart that the Lord does not want me to do what you're trying to coerce me to do, they said, well, if you can prove that religiously you don't, aren't supposed to take this without mentioning the conscience. So what they did right off the bat is they ripped the argument of conscience out of your hand, and now they said, prove it. (laughs) The problem is this. It's all about conscience. God gave you a conscience. You know, I was thinking about this with police officers. And I respect police officers, and I think we need them, and I think we ought to honor them, and and uh, treat them with respect. But this is it. Any job I ever do, I don't care what it is, there'll be one thing that will govern my conduct above all else. And that is my conscience. If you can go into a job and say, well, it's just my duty, there's something wrong with your head and heart. Now, if it's a duty, do your duty. But that duty ought never to cause you to go against your very conscience. I'll tell you why. Because the moment you do that, you begin to reform the very source of authority for your conscience. The Bible tells us that the word of God ought to shape our conscience as God's people. The truth of the word of God shapes the way we feel about things. The moment you shift from the word of God to something else, duty, whatever, They require it, money, whatever it is. You have now reshaped your complete conscience to a different source. Amen? God's people must always keep their conscience in line with the book. That's the truth. 
Now, a person doesn't have to. You can go believe that uh, uh, you came from a monkey. You can say you came from a broomstick. It doesn't matter. I mean, whatever you want to believe, you go ahead and believe that. And you will form your conscience to that very thought. And you'll feel bad for the monkeys. (laughs) Because they're my ancestors, and that's my uncle and aunt, and so forth. But folks, that doesn't bother me. Because they're not my uncle and aunt. They're an animal. Just like a rabbit and a dog and different animals, they're, they're on the same level. They're not human. Because the Bible says so. So my conscience has formed that thought. My conscience was formed by the word of God. Let me just warn you here. When you start allowing your conscience to be formed by anything else by the word of God, you are changing your life. And the next time God says, thus saith the Lord, you might just say, well, you know, I know God said, thus saith the Lord, but uh, it's my duty. (laughs) Well, if it's your duty, and you're going to go against scripture, what now is your conscience being formed to? That's a religious argument. That's a religious exemption. (laughs) Do you understand that? We as God's people, be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace I have about doing something is based upon my relationship with God, not my relationship with the government. The moment you're saying, I've got to have peace with you, opposed to peace with him, you're attacking my religion. You get what I'm saying here? Yeah. I know what the world's saying, and they're saying, just like Jehovah's Witness, I can't have a blood transfusion. I can't do this. I can't do that again. That's not what we're talking about. We're far deeper than that. (laughs) We're getting to the very construct of what man is actually made of because God made us. It's all religion. (laughs) It's all based on that. In fact, our Constitution was written. Why? Why did they put conscience in the Constitution? Because of God's people. Because of what we fought for for centuries, dying, because we were being forced to do things that we ought not have been forced to do. Millions and millions of Christians being burned at the stake because they didn't do what the state church wanted done. So when we moved over here to North America, we said maybe this is the place where we can now live with freedom of conscience. So the Constitution was built upon Christians and what we fought for for centuries. But now you get a government leader, one, that says, no, 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 no conscience. I say, yes, 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 conscience. We have to maintain that and fight for that. It's the truth. Amen? So you get what I'm saying there? I'm trying to teach a concept here. And it's not just, I'm not worried about COVID. I'm not worried about COVID. I mean, if you want to get a, uh, if you want to get a uh, what is it, vaccination, I, I really don't care. You do what you want to do. But what I'm concerned about is people aren't doing it because they know the Lord wants them to or doesn't want them to. They're doing it because they're scared. They're scared. I'm not going to be able to buy and sell and so forth. We're leading up to it in this passage. What the Antichrist is going to use to manipulate the conscience of men. Okay, And so the government usurped scriptural authority by requiring worship of a false god. 
And that's why in verse 4 it says, Then an herald cried out, To you it is commanded, O people, nations and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. There's not much room for choice in that. <laughs> in fact, there's no room for choice. You see, this is how it is. You are commanded. No room for religious freedoms. And it says, And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. So commanded. Another word that's used here later is decree. A decree. That means a judgment. A command of God. Uh, number three. The image was given to unify religion in a common worship as will the Antichrist image during Daniel's 70-week prophecy. Now, when I say Daniel's 70th-week prophecy, what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the Tribulation Week, the Great Tribulation. We always hear it's a tribulation. But in all reality, the very technical term for it is Daniel's 70th week. The 70th week. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. Amen. Now, 69 of those weeks have passed by. We know those weeks are, are weeks of seven. A week doesn't refer, necessarily refer to a seven days. It can refer to seven years. So when he's saying 70 weeks, he's talking about 70 times seven years, 490. That's why Jesus said, when they asked him, you know, how oft shall I forgive my brother? Seven times? He said, no, 70 times seven, 490 times. Amen. And so we know that's what he's saying here. And that last week after the church age is yet to come. We call that the tribulation week, the seven years that are left. So we've got 63 of those weeks already behind us. We got seven more, seven more years, sorry, not weeks. And so Matthew 24, verse 15, it says this. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation... Spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let him which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Now we know that's going to happen mid-tribulation. Three and a half years into the tribulation, there's going to be an abomination set up in the temple. And that's going to be the image of the beast. That's going to be required to worship by those that are citizens at that time. Now, in Revelation 13, uh, this is what it's... Do I have Daniel here? I'll read Daniel. Since it mentioned Daniel's prophecy, I'll read Daniel's prophecy. It says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Now, who's he? He is the Antichrist, the little horn of Daniel. He is the, the, the prince of the people that destroyed Israel in AD 70. That's the Roman Empire, all right? And so he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. So one week is seven years. It says that the Antichrist will make a covenant at the beginning of the seventh year. That's going to mark the beginning of the tribulation. That's 70th week. The rapture doesn't mark the beginning. Okay, we need to understand that. I, I mean, I, I remember uh, growing up or learning Early on when I was a Christian, I thought, oh, the rapture is what begins the tribulation. It's not true. What begins the tribulation <clears throat> is the covenant 
that's made by the Antichrist with Israel that will no doubt institute their temple worship again, uh, probably set up a temple on, uh, on the Temple Mount somehow. Right now, what's there? I, I was there. I was visiting. We weren't even allowed up there because there's a mosque built on the Temple Mount. But somehow, the Antichrist is going to figure a way to get the temple built probably there on the Temple Mount. And he's going to institute a system of worship like the Old Testament once, once did. And the Israelites are going to say, great, this is what we wanted. Where do I sign? Until halfway through the tribulation. <laughs> then they realize this guy's not what we thought he was. Amen. And that's when things get really tricky, about three and a half years in. So it says, and in the midst of the week, this is it. So he lets them sacrifice the way they did in the Old Testament, but in the midst of the week, three and a half years in, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. He's going to say, nope, no more sacrificing. Well, what's with our covenant? Come on. You said we were, we were allowed to sacrifice like we did in the Old Testament economy. Nope, he shuts them down. Why? And it says, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. What that means is, he is going to bring abominations into the temple, the image that people will have to worship. And... It says, even until the consummation. What's consummation? That's the completion. That's when Jesus Christ comes and pours his judgment upon the Antichrist. <clears throat> so three and a half years in, he breaks that. He stops their sacrificial system. And so here the Israelites saying, wow, we signed this deal to get this guy into power. And now he abused the deal and he takes over leadership of the world in his deception. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he knew the benefit of uniting people around a common religion. He really did. And that's why he did this. This move was politically motivated. And you can be sure that one day when he will set up his, his kingdom that he wants to rule this earth with, that it's going to be taken away very quickly, that religion is a big part of that. And that's why in Revelation chapter 13, I'll go back here and read this to you. Revelation 13, verse 11. It says, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. So basically, this beast is a second beast. The first one was the political leader, the Antichrist. The second one was a religious leader. It came up out of the earth. The earth is always pictured about the people. It came up from the people. This person that was representing this figure, this religious figure. He had two horns like a lamb. That means he looked like he was, oh, I love Jesus. But he spake as a dragon. And a dragon is representative, especially in the book of Revelation, as Satan. Okay? And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Because there was some wound 
that in, was inflicted on the first beast where they thought he was dead or he was dead and somehow he rose. Which made them think this guy is beyond a normal man. And he doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which would have the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. So this religious beast had the power to make that image seem as though it were alive. Then it says that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Think about this. You could not buy or sell without the mark. You talk about the great experiment. <laughs> Amen. You can't buy or sell if you don't get this. <laughs> when I was confronted with the decision, it wasn't really much of a decision for me in the last couple of years about the vaccinations and so forth. What really just hit me is if the godly people during the tribulation, those that would get saved during the first three and a half years, because there are people that will be saved. And if they are going to be tested, whether they are going to eat, how much they're going to eat or buy or sell uh, based upon worship and so forth, I feel that I don't need to give in to this type of coercion because it's the same character. Amen. You understand that? So if I'm going to do this, it's not based upon buying or selling. It's based upon whether I want to do this and it's whether something God wants me to do this. But anybody that will give in because of buying or selling or traveling or whatever, folks, think about that. The Christians of the tribulation will be facing a far greater threat than you. And they will stand. Amen. And they will stand. And the Bible says they will be killed. Now, that's just my thought. I don't put that on anybody else. That's my own personal thing. I just felt I need to show myself that I can stand in the midst of this coercion. Now, you, it doesn't matter <laughs> what decision you made. Everyone makes a decision for their, own, for their own sake. But you know something? I just don't believe it's right to coerce people to do things. That is not the scriptural way. And I don't want to give in to a tactic that's going to be adopted, built on, and used in the near future as the Antichrist is going to cause people to take that mark or they can't buy or sell. You get what I'm saying there? Now, that's just me. <laughs> you do what you want. But that's just me. I, I'm not sitting here, everybody, you can't come to church. <laughs> no, that, I don't have that at all. I, I'm thinking individual soul liberty. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Amen? And I'm persuaded. All right? So number four, music 
was the tool that was used to unify the people around this false worship. And I just have to bring this out because I believe, as we know, that Satan was a creation. In Ezekiel, we find that in Ezekiel chapter 28, he was a creation, a musical being created with tabrets and a pipe, uh, pipes within himself where he, was a mu- he could create music without an instrument. And this creature that turned against God was now corrupt in all of his wisdom and surely corrupt in all of his music. The one that's going to put that Antichrist on that throne, he will use his talent. We sometimes get the story of the, of the Pied Piper. <laughs> the power of music, you know. He is the Pied Piper. And people today, I think, are falling headlong after music that isn't proper for them. Amen? It says, verse 5, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music. All kinds. Because, of course, music is amoral. It has no morality. I mean, how can you say a note has morality? The B note. Is that wrong or right? <laughs> like I said in our Sunday school, uh, a B note is not moral until it gets into the hands of an immoral man. Because we are inventors of evil things. We are corrupt in our soul. Amen? You get what I'm saying there? Am I confusing you? All right. <laughs> okay. So notes are not moral. But notes, as they're placed together by someone with a corrupt soul, become moral or immoral. Like I said last time, it's the same way as paint. Nothing wrong with blue, nothing wrong with red, nothing wrong with pink, as long as men don't wear it. Uh, (laughs) You get what I'm saying there? No, I'm not going to preach on that right right now. (laughs) Amen. But I tell you, you take all these colors and you give this corrupt person a brush and say, paint, express yourself. It now has become a moral issue. Amen? And we need to understand that. And so this music communicated something. There was a communication to the soul of those that were listening to it. All kinds of music. And with that music, they would worship. Something I'm just really concerned about today within churches is that churches are using rock music And I have people that this is the reason that they're telling me that they're saying, well, I worship God with it. I worship. (laughs) So no, no, no. You can worship God with your music, but your worship doesn't come from music. You understand that? I'm worshiping God right now. You know how I'm doing that? I'm lifting him up while I'm preaching. I'm making him much and I'm lifting him up and, and making him look great to man. Amen. That's worship. The Bible says that the day will come where men shall worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship isn't about playing the instrument, even though with music I can worship. Amen? But that is a minute part. Like I told this one person one time, I said, in your church, if they take away the electric guitars, they take away the drums, they take away the smoke show, they take away the, the flashing lights, and next week all you have is a pastor there with a Bible. How many will come back to worship? You get that. You know how 
that place will clean out? Well, how do you expect me to worship without this music? The same way that God said you should. In spirit and according to the truth. Amen. Amen? That's true worship. And that's the way we ought to worship. So these kind of things are just coming out to me as I'm reading through this passage. Worship has to be spiritual and must be done in the truth. A false sense of worship can be experienced with music. So sometimes the music and the experience with it, especially the emotional aspect of it, can actually be counterfeit to what true spiritual worship is. Because I had people saying, well, it just makes me feel so... Whoa! That's not what you're supposed to say. We don't worship through our emotions first. The music goes through our mind, our will, and then our emotion. That means it first hits my thinker. Amen? The spiritual music and the message is carried on that melody. And you know what? I'm thinking about what I'm, being, what I'm hearing here. Amazing grace. How great the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know? I can say those words and you're already blessed. Now let's put it to godly music. Now I'm not going to sing to you. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> Amen. Those that would not worship the golden image would be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Furnaces were used industrially in Babylon for either iron or Babylonian brick. Um, Bricks, Babylonian bricks, would need to be heated to 1,000 degrees. That's how they'd get the, the hardness out of those bricks. Now, how they did that back then, well, they know how to do it. I don't know how to do it. If I get my barbecue going at 300 degrees, I'm happy. But you know what? They can get it up to 1,000. I mean, sometimes my barbecue messes up because it doesn't work really well. And I I light it and I go back out. All of a sudden, it's at 700 degrees. And I don't know why. And so I put the burgers on. It's just like instant charcoal. But 700, I could barely, I got to actually stand a little bit away from the barbecue. Add another 300 degrees. That's the brick temperature. Seven times that is what the Hebrew boys had to go through because they got the king mad. 7,000 degrees. Now, I could barely get to my barbecue to lift up the lid when the soldiers that brought those boys into that furnace got close. They died. They pushed the men in. They tried to walk away, and before they could get one step away, they were flat dead on the ground because of the heat. My goodness. <laughs> and we'll get to that next week a little bit. Worship, worship must never be coerced. It's an act of a willfully submitted soul. You cannot coerce worship. You cannot make somebody worship something. <laughs> it is an act of a willful soul. Amen. That's why in Romans 14, verse 5, it says, One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Where I come from, we have a Mennonite background. The Mennonites 
have all kinds of traditions. <laughs> I remember we'd have workers that work for us. My dad would always just really have to work with himself certain times of the year. Because when there was a religious holiday, these guys would take three days off. Because it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, well, sure, you like that. But it's not really scriptural, <laughs> you know. And so, every time this happened, my dad... Shut down crews because these guys are out. And where are they? You know how many times we found out they were playing video lottos instead of going to work. You see, but I'll tell you something. This is what I told my dad. I said, it's one thing if someone just dumps on that on you after you hire them. I don't think that's very ethical. If you're going to work a job, you better tell your employer what kind of religious holidays you are going to observe. And don't dump on at the last minute, because if you do, you are unethical, and you shouldn't observe those holidays because you were not being honest. Amen? But if someone comes to you and they say, guess what? These are the holidays I have, and the boss says, hey, you know, it's not that I observe those things, but hey, that's okay. You know what? I know that I don't have to take a holiday for the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I don't even have to take Christmas off. Christmas is not a biblical holiday. I mean, you want to go take Christmas, whatever. I really don't care. But all I'm saying is, folks, a person has the right to do what he feels religiously that he wants to do. That's the kind of land we live in today. And the Bible says, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. That means that I don't have the right to just go to these people and say, I'm not going to let you have those because to me it's nothing. If I want to observe this principle of scripture, I have to allow these people to have their three days. At least until the point where you can teach them scripturally, where they can come to a position in their own heart and mind. Amen? They have to become fully persuaded. Do you understand that? So it wouldn't be right for me to force someone not to take their three days off. I wouldn't do that. And the only way I would question that is, why didn't you tell me this before I hired you? That's an ethical issue. But if they told me who they were beforehand, I would have to let them take three days and I'll just shut my mouth. And let them observe it. Because that's the kind of religion we have. You understand that? No coercion. No fiery furnaces. No fiery furnaces. No COVID jails. No anything like that. Do you understand that? We are traveling on very dangerous ground today when we throw out the conscience argument and try to come up with some kind of religious exemption apart from the thing that makes it a religious exemption. Amen? My goodness. Number three, we'll be done. The Antichrist, is it eight o'clock? It is eight o'clock. The Antichrist will use this type of coercion to require worship of the beast. And we know that the Bible says, and he had power to give life into the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. 
They should be killed. The Christians, during that time, they will not worship the image of the beast due to their witness of Jesus and for the word of God. And we see that in chapter 20. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and the judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Amen? True believers aren't going to take the number. Now, folks, you don't have to worry about that if you're born again here today. If you have received Christ as your Savior, you will be raptured before the 70th week. Because that 70th week is not for the church. It's for Israel. That's why in Daniel it says, it's determined upon thy people. He's talking to Daniel. His people were Israel. So those 60, 70 weeks, all 70 of them were always about Israel. The first 69 weeks and the last one as well. Amen. It was after the 69th week that the church was instituted. And that was a lull in time or a gap in the time clock here. That's undetermined as far as how long that's going to be. So that has nothing to do with Israel because Israel has been set aside. So the 70th week will retain the same character as 1 to 69, which has to do with Israel. (laughs) Amen. And so we know the church will be finished its duty before the Lord and be raptured out before that 70th week. And then Israel will be dealt with once again. All right. And so... People that refuse to worship the image will not be allowed to buy or sell because they did not receive the mark of the beast revealing their allegiance to the Antichrist. I just want to point out one thing will be done. It says that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark and the name of the beast or the number of his name. It said both small and great, poor and rich. I looked at that word small. The word small is the word micron and that can mean little or a comparative degree or can mean not of age or young and I thought about this this is happening today in our libraries that's wicked and they're teaching our children See, small and great. They're being led already into the mindset. Look at this one. Oh, it's not very clear. Look at all those children being promoting sexual immorality to these little kids. What are their chances of getting saved when they're already given over to sin at a young age? You understand? That's the character of the Antichrist empire. And we got to be careful about that. And I know it's not very popular. This will get me in trouble, put me in jail. Well, whatever. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. We have got to help our kids to understand this. And parents, we have to teach them about morality and about wickedness and and, and sin and sexual sin and, and these kind of things. Folks, this is not acceptable to God. God made man male and female, created he them. 
And I'm not saying that to be just malicious or unkind. I'm just saying because it's truth. And, it's, and I want to worship God in spirit and in truth. <laughs> you can't worship God like that. But you can worship the beast like that. And in fact, that's the kind of heart that will worship the beast. So I just wanted, I know it's a little shocking, <laughs> but folks, uh, I want us to understand that we are living in a day and age that's leading right into that Antichrist kingdom. And now's the time for us to stop being weak believers and start standing for the truth. Start standing for the word of God. Lovingly, but yet firmly, just like these three Hebrew boys, they had to face it. They faced that king. And you know what? They were thrown in the furnace. And you know what? The Lord delivered them. You know? And you know what? Just like these people that were beheaded, because they did not receive the mark of the beast. There they are, standing where? At the throne of God. What's going to happen? Or are you going to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years? Where are those that receive the mark? At that point, they're already in the pit for eternity. Amen?